Ooh, challenging. Boasting about tomorrow, James 4, 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, do, is it meant to be do you? Do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Thanks, Jenny. Quite the uh, punchy reading today. <laughs> Once more. Um, <clears throat> a few years ago, I had an itchy mole on my back. <clears throat> and one day I was just idly scratching it. And the top of it, well, pretty much half of it came away in my fingernail. And then it started bleeding. And I thought, ew. Um, but I put a sticking plaster on it, and the next day it had stopped bleeding. And so I thought no more about it. <coughs> and then over the following months, a, a part of it started to grow out to one side a bit, and it started to look pretty ugly. And a few months later, I was swimming in the pool, and my niece was there, Hannah, and she said, man, that mole looks pretty bad. You need to probably go and get it checked out. So about a year later, <laughs> typical man, eh? Yeah, typical man. About a year later, I went to see a skin specialist and I said I had this mole that I wanted him to look at. And So I lifted up my shirt and I was watching. <laughs> I was watching his face and he saw it and he was like this. <laughs> and I thought, <clears throat> okay, that's not good. That's not good. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be, oh, well, here was sure it was a melanoma. And so he cut it out and sent it away. Quite a big chunk, actually. It went about that deep into my back. And I've got quite a decent scar um, where it came from in my back. <clears throat> um, it's amazing how, like, a bleeding mole, something so small, but it can mean such bad news. And in our reading from James today, we see something similar. James starts with something pretty innocuous. <clears throat> today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. It's pretty innocuous, isn't it? You, it's like, I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. What's wrong with that? And then he goes on to point out that this kind of talk is boasting and arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. It's like, wait a second, Jimmy. Aren't you going a bit over the top here? It looks like it's um, overkill in what he's saying. <coughs> but I think like that bleeding mole, what James is pointing to here is one of the most significant issues for us to understand in our relationship with God. And it's an underlying theme that runs through the whole of Scripture. And it certainly explains a lot for me about why life is the way it is. And the issue is the cancer of self-reliance. So um, let's have a look at the context before we explore this some more. <clears throat> a little while back, a few Sundays ago, um, we looked at wisdom from James 3. And we concluded this, that wisdom is a gift uh, from God of knowing the best way to act in any given situation to bring about the purposes of God, which will be for our ultimate benefit. 
And then last week, Sarah <coughs> enlarged this understanding of wisdom for us from Eugene Peterson. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is a skill in living. For what is the good of a truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is the intention if we can't sustain it? According to church traditions, James carried the nickname Old Camel Knees because of thick calluses built up on his knees for many years of determined prayer. The prayer is foundational to the wisdom. Prayer is always foundational to wisdom. <coughs> so prayer is a prerequisite to wisdom from a, a biblical point of view. And that means that we need to stay close to God in prayer so that we can receive wisdom specifically for each and every situation that we face. And it will involve us cultivating a relationship with the Lord on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and remaining in humble dependence on Him. So <clears throat> with that in mind, let's have a look back at this phrase. Today or tomorrow we will go to that, this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Um, there's nothing in this statement that indicates a humble dependence on God, is there? In fact, there's no mention of God at all. <coughs> there's almost a, a bragging about the plan to make money, uh, which implies a complete confidence in the person's own ability who is saying this. Um, and it also indicates that uh, the ultimate purpose of life is, is making money. And I don't think that's true. <clears throat> As James says, we don't even know what will happen tomorrow, let alone in a year's time. And instead, James tells us when we express our dreams and desires, uh, we ought to say something like, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. <coughs> in other words, it's important to remind ourselves that we are completely dependent on the Lord's grace for each and every breath that we take let alone what will happen in a year's time. And if we cultivate that idea of dependence on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, it will create in us a conscious dependent, a dependence upon God. It will be, if you like, our go-to. It will be a natural part of our lives. And James is <clears throat> addressing deep heart attitudes in this passage. And deep heart attitudes aren't always obvious from words alone. Um, they're subtle things which can have huge consequence, consequences. So we're going to have a look at some examples now from, from Scripture about deep heart attitudes and how, drastic, uh, how drastically different the outcomes can be. And the first example is um, Peter versus John. Now, <clears throat> I love Peter. He's such a human character. Um, I love the way he's so brash I love the way he's the only guy to get out of the boat and walk on water. Everyone else is too scared. I love that about him. But he had to learn a very hard lesson, and that lesson was the danger of relying on himself. And when Jesus announced to his disciples that he would be betrayed, Peter says this, <clears throat> Even if all fall away on account of you, I, will, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So what's Peter's heart attitude here? It was that his love for Jesus was so strong that he would never disown Jesus, right? In fact, he would lay down his life for him. In other words, Peter boasted in his love for Jesus. 
Okay, is that clear? And we all know the story about what happened next. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now in contrast, let's have a look at John. I don't know about you, but I find John a bit flowery. He's quite wordy. You know, it takes... (laughs) He's got good stuff, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of hard to distill. He, he's, I kind of feel sometimes he says stuff in about, you know, 10 pages that he could have said in about one page. But John, um, in fact, this is what John said about himself. <clears throat> um, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I found this quite disturbing for many years because I thought the Bible was saying that John, uh, Jesus loved John more than everyone else. And then I realised, <clears throat> or it was pointed out to me by a preacher, that this phrase only ever occurs in the Gospel of John. And John wrote the Gospel of John. So John is the only one who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) That's quite amazing. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus didn't love John more than anyone else. John was simply boasting in Jesus' love for him. Okay? Now what was the result of this in the context of the crucifixion Uh, that terrible time when the Son of God was nailed to the cross. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. (coughs) Of all the disciples... The one who boasted of Jesus' love for him was the only one to be on hand at that terrible moment. And Jesus needed him, right? He wanted him to look after his mother. That means Joseph had died somewhere along the line. So John was on hand to be of... um, He ministered to Christ as he hung on the cross. That's that's a, a, a really big moment I think so let's have a look at the thoughts feelings and actions triangle here's Peter thoughts my love for Jesus is strong feelings pride I'll never let Jesus down I'll never deny him outcome deny denial denied (laughs) now let's look at John Jesus' love for me is strong. What did that create in him? Feelings of love for Jesus. What was the behaviour? He was the only disciple to remain at the cross. John's love for Jesus was actually stronger than Peter's because he knew that Jesus loved him and he boasted about it. You see that? And that's why he said this in his letter, 
This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see how something so seemingly insignificant can lead to such drastically different outcomes? Huge, hugely different outcomes. If you want to love God more, try boasting in his love for you, like John did. <clears throat> example number two, the philosopher. And we're going to go into the Old Testament for this example. Have you ever wondered why Ecclesiastes is in the Bible? Seems like such a negative book. Negative. For many years I puzzled about it, but I think perhaps it's to do with this principle of self-reliance versus God-reliance. And let's look at what the philosopher boasted in. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. Quite the grand claim, isn't it? Quite a proud statement. No mention of God. No, by God's grace I will explore wisdom, what it means. What was his conclusion? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Thanks, mate. Very helpful. When the philosopher tried to figure out life relying on his own wisdom, he failed and could only conclude that everything was meaningless. And the same thing has happened down through the ages. I just picked this up off um, Wikipedia, talking about postmodernism. Criticisms of postmodernism are intellectually diverse and include assertions that postmodernism pr promotes obscurantism and is meaningless, adding nothing to the analytical or, or empirical knowledge. The entire output of Western civilization has come down to this amazing statement, life is meaningless, which is what the philosopher figured out 3,000 years ago. Nice one team, eh? Why modern philosophers still don't understand that when they refuse to rely on the wisdom of God, they will fail in their quest to figure life out. We'll have a look at why this is shortly from a theological point of view. <clears throat> Example three, going back even further, uh, the nation of Israel. So Israel became a significant entity in Egypt when they were in captivity, and their number grew to about 600,000 men, not including women and children. And during the exodus when they left Egypt and they journeyed through the desert of Sin, the Lord was with them in a, a lovely way. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. You're talking about a million people, probably more. Must be a pretty big pillar of cloud. Must be a pretty big pillar of fire. You've been in a stinking hot day and then a cloud goes over the sun. And it's like, oh, that's better. Or have you ever been freezing cold and you've lit a fire? And you're like, oh, that's so good. These are visible and comforting signs in addition to the physical benefits of those things that the Lord was close. 
The Lord provided for his people water and food, even when they grumbled. And yet in Exodus 19, we read this very alarming passage. Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Whoa. How did we go from a pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, to don't come near me or you'll be killed? Why the change? I think the key is this passage here. Oops, I must have missed something. I'll have to read it out, sorry. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Eagle's wings, beautiful picture, isn't it? Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them the words of the Lord who commanded him to speak. All the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. We will do everything the Lord has said. If the Lord called you to perfect obedience, what would you say? Would you say, we will do everything the Lord has said? I will do everything the Lord has said. Is that what you'd say? You'd go, uh, excuse me, Lord, uh, not sure I can do that. Track record hasn't been that flash up till now. No indication that's going to change anytime soon. And what what do the people of Israel say? We will do everything the Lord has said. Heart attitude, what is it saying? We are sufficiently good enough to do everything that you require. It's not me. I've learnt that the hard way. When I rely on my own strength, I fail miserably. And a few verses later, we read, the people made a golden calf and they worshipped it. So much for, we will do everything the Lord has said. (laughs) Right? So it's only that I understand now that the admission of our inability to do what God requires of us, which is essentially powerlessness, and this is a a really powerful principle that um, Celebrate Recovery taught me, is a prerequisite for God to give us his power to live in the way he wants us to. God wants us to say, I can't do it. That's what God wants. It displays... It takes humility to do that. It takes an honest appraisal, doesn't it, of yourself to say, ah, I can't do that, Lord. Certainly not in my own strength. Example number four, King Solomon. I find the story of Solomon quite sad. He started off so awesome. This is what he said to the Lord. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? 
just dripping with humility, isn't it? Very humble thing to say. Did God like it? Yep. This is what the Lord said. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. Wow. God liked what Solomon said. But his great wisdom became a source of pride to him. And I always thought King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but Sarah tells me there's some disagreement about that um, now with the biblical scholars. But um, certainly Solomon um, relied, began, to, began to rely on his own decisions rather than consult the Lord. And this ultimately led to his fall from grace and his heart drifting away from God. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. What does all this mean from God's perspective? I think it can be summed up in this verse. Pride comes before disaster and arrogance before a fall. That's from Proverbs 16.18. And Paul describes why this prideful attitude is so toxic in Galatians. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ, you have fallen away from God's grace. So self-reliance is a, is a symptom of living under the law. That's what the, the law says, do this. And if we go, okay, I'm going to go away and do this by myself, that's self-reliance. That's relying on our own strength and goodness. God reliance is a symptom of living under grace. God reliance says, I can't do this, God. I'll need you to help me. And this understanding has been of great help to me. And I began to see a pattern in my life that when I sinned, I usually had fallen from grace a few days before by thinking that I could handle something when I couldn't. It usually started by me thinking, I'll just have a wee dabble in this that I know is wrong, and then I'll stop before it gets out of hand. What was I relying on? I was relying on my goodness to pull out, and that I had the power and the strength to not let it master me, and never worked like that. So let's bring this home. Today, James has pointed out that a seemingly harmless statement can indicate a self-reliant heart. And a self-reliant heart is an anti-God spiritual attitude that inevitably leads to some kind of moral failure. We've looked at four examples where pride and self-reliance came before a big four, and Scripture is full of examples. How about us? How's your past week been? Have you blown it in any situation? If you did blow it this week, can you think back and see if you were relying on your own goodness, your own ability not to blow it? Let's also ask the Lord to help us get more comfortable 
was saying, I can't do this, Lord. I need your help. And let's ask him to move us increasingly towards relying and boasting in him, like the Apostle John did. So let's pray, eh? Lord, we thank you for the Apostle John. Lord, he, he goes on and on about love because he knew what love was. He knew where love came from. He knew how love works. Thank you, Lord, that he boasted in your love for him. What a wonderful example for us to follow. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that you love each of us. You know us intimately through and through. And your love still remains for us. Lord, we would boast of your love today. We would rejoice in your love for us today. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Take us to a spiritual place of deep reliance and surrender to you. Holy Spirit, increase our day-by-day, moment-by-moment consciousness of your presence. Help us never to rely on ourselves, to think that we're good enough, we're powerful enough, we're strong enough to operate in our areas of weakness, Lord. Take us to that place of dependence on you, Lord Jesus.